Hello, mortals. Welcome to another episode of the How to Human podcast, where we talk about the endless suffering that is life. <laughs> um, this episode is dedicated to and in loving memory of the greatest cat that ever was and ever will be, Gringo. I had him as a drug addict. We got sober together. And he's just been the best cat over the last 10 years. And unfortunately, he um, disappeared a couple weeks ago. It's coyote season, and so I can only assume the worst. And sometimes, apparently, the worst is getting eaten alive by dog-like, wild, demon, hellhound, asshole coyotes. So, you know, the next time somebody says, uh, what's the worst that could happen? Just be like, hmm, getting eaten alive by coyotes. That sounds pretty bad. <clears throat> but anyway, I'm super grateful for the 10 years I had with him. In other <laughs> crazy life on life's terms, I have no control over much. Um, I've lost two episodes. <laughs> I've just... <laughs> shit. I uh, went to Nashville and recorded two incredible conversations. And when I got back, they just weren't on the memory card. And according to people who know more than I, who checked out all the audio equipment, um, the memory card broke. <laughs> I'm laughing because sometimes it's just like so hilariously fucked that you just have to laugh. Because, you know, here's what's going to happen. I actually got really close to the guest I interviewed in Nashville. It's going to be okay. I'm going to end up going back at some point. We're going to redo it. And somehow, I bet the conversations are going to be even better than they were. So that's life. That's the way it happens sometimes. Bad things happen. You know, if you look back on how you behaved before shit went awry, if you're proud of who you are, then you know what? Sometimes random bad shit just happens and other times they're amazing opportunities to learn and grow and I just talked to somebody who I haven't talked to in over a year and I feel like I haven't made any progress and to her I'm like a totally different human I mean she couldn't stop pointing it out and these things are slow progress is slow and if you're not careful if you turn your back on what's what's happening in your mind, then these shitty moments will rob you of the truth. Because the truth is that the past 30 days have been magic, nothing short of magic. And the past two days, I'm in some funk and it wants to make me forget. And it wants to tell me that I'm a piece of shit, that nothing's going right. And it's been like this for months. And the truth is it's been like this for two days. That's the nature of these things. They will rob you. Don't let them rob you. Just get through them and keep going. And it's slow. It's a lot slower than you want it to be. But when it finally clicks and you get through that hurdle, you get another chunk of magic again and you can create it for other people. Your ability to create magic is so important to take advantage of. Go talk to your barista who makes your coffee every morning and makes you smile every morning, figure out what he or she is into 
And if they go to art school, go buy them a gift certificate to some art supplies and just show up with it randomly and just say, here you go. This is just for being awesome. Because sometimes awesome things just happen for no reason, just like sometimes bad things happen for no reason. And I'm looking at that we're at like four minutes, 20 seconds in. I should be done by now. I'm sorry I've gotten so off the rails. I'm also aware how many times I've used the word awesome, but I am in awe of some of the things happening. And I'm going to take a moment to be a responsible host of a program that is trying to survive and try and pitch you in supporting us in the form of gratitude because both of those things are happening and they are not mutually exclusive Thank you so much to everyone who has taken the time to share their favorite episode on social media, has taken the time to send me a note and say, I know you're a fucking quitter, Sam, and you probably feel like quitting sometimes, but don't quit. I like what you're doing. It means a ton to me. Thanks to everyone who wrote a review on iTunes. That is such a treat and so permanent. And when I come to iTunes, uh, Apple Podcasts, and see that somebody took the time to write a new review, it means the world to me. And to the patrons who are financially supporting us, God damn it, I love you people. We're not there yet, but you guys make it a lot easier uh, that we're not footing the bill ourselves um, entirely and uh, we can in part split the national fiasco. (laughs) And so if you want to help us, everything's in the show notes, um, which is the podcast description and uh, go to patreon.com slash hello human if you want to pitch in a buck a month that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash hello human and uh, thank you so much whether or not you support us financially whether or not you share us on social media whether or not you write a review on iTunes um, I love you guys but to you guys who do participate thank you you do make me feel like I'm a part of something a part of this community we're building rather than just a guy who is currently talking into a microphone alone in a closet office. And I'm inspired. I want to be a part of this love fest too. And so I just want to give a couple of shout outs to some cool creatives. If you're looking to support other artists or looking to discover cool art that you might have not discovered otherwise, well, I asked our patrons and our Instagram followers just to let us know if they know of an artist or creative that needed a shout out. My favorite is Tony's tie-dyes. Tony's wife contacted me and said that when she fell really ill, her husband picked up a second job, really carried the slack of the family, never never made her feel ashamed of her illness. And I'm getting a little emotional because the story was much longer and much better than this. But And in this process, he just, he rediscovered his love for tie-dye. And he used to do it as a, a deadhead, I believe. And so... His art, his tie-dye art, it can be found at tonystiedyes.com. I think it'd be really cool if he was just inundated with orders or interest in his artwork. Um, or maybe you just throw him a couple bucks just for whatever, just for some fucking magic. And um, also the the song that accompanied this intro in, in the beginning that you heard is a independent artist out of Nashville. That's a new friend of mine, Mercy Bell. The song is called Home. And I asked her for instrumental. If you're a musician, I'd, I'd love to use your music for the intros as well. Send us a instrumental and a full version to hello at hellohumans.co. And if we can make it work, we will. That's it. That's the rant. Love you. Here's the, the official intro, which I'll make under a minute, I promise. 
So as you make your way through life, which, you know, part of the deal is that it comes with these moments of doubt, of hardship, of struggle. One of the easiest things to lose is your sense of self, your voice, the idea that who you are and what you do and what you say really matters despite being one of billions of people on this planet. Our guest today is Tina Alexis Allen, and I am such a huge fan now. She's really become one of my role models because she is a mirror of so many of the things I fear about myself, that what I have been through, my traumas have permanently ruined me, that I started too late and I will never achieve my dreams, and that what I'm doing matters. And she is such a good example of that. She's been through some of the worst things that life can offer and her view of humanity, her view of the world, the way she moves through this world is beautiful and contagious. She did a mid pivot career, even though things were going somewhat well and is just going for it, despite the fact that it can feel hopeless at times and feel like, how am I going to compete? And most importantly, she uses her fucking voice, man, in ways that I hope to one day. Believe it or not, I know I'm an open book, but there are things that I'm not quite ready to talk about publicly. And she's a great example of how to do that responsibly and from a place of healing and compassion. And so here is my conversation with Tina Alexis Allen. Hey, Tina, welcome to the program. Thank you. Or thank you for welcoming me here, Yeah, which is normally the case. Beautiful. Um, Glad to be here. Just to jump right in, to people who don't know who you are, who are you? And that can be as big or as small of a question as you want it to be. Well, the first thing that always comes to mind is the youngest of 13 kids, because I think I'll forever be identified no matter how old I get as the youngest of 13, because it's such a stamp, you know, having such a big family. Um, but I am an actor, a writer, a playwright. I just wrote my first book, uh, Hiding Out, which we're going to talk about, um, uh, a director and uh, an entrepreneur. I have a uh, socially conscious jewelry brand, which I don't know if you're familiar with, but Gina Raffaella Jewelry, we'll talk about it. Yeah, I'd yeah. love to. Yeah. And so, yeah, you've written a book that came out in February yep. this year. You're working on a play, directing directing your first play. Yes. You've written plays before. Yes, my own mostly. Uh, Extremities is what I'm directing. And is a very intense play. Let's back up and talk about how you got here, which I think the book covers a bit about as well. Yeah, uh, how I got to where I am right now. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, you know, as a kid, I guess I, I identified myself really as an athlete. It was pretty much my life. I had a basketball on my hip, I think, from the time I was about eight, uh, and then went to college on basketball scholarships, uh, on a scholarship, but had scholarship offers. And um, that's kind of how I identified. And then I got an MBA and thought I was going to head into business, which I did in fashion, though. Uh, so it was creative. But then by the time I was 30, I had lots of stuff, and I was, you know, living a high life in New York City, let's say, and um, also not happy. And so I literally one day walked away from my desk uh, and said, I'm going to go home. And I never went back. And it was an epiphany about a year later that I actually thought I wanted to become an actor because it had not been at all in my life, in my family, 
I wasn't even in a school play, so I don't even know where it came from, really. Um, I mean, I do have some ideas today, sort of more psychologically what that was about. But for sure, it was a new career at 30 and a beginning, taking my first class. And then and then things have evolved um, from acting to starting to write solo shows um, so I could act more, <laughs> writing a lot of autobiographical stuff, um, screenplays as well. And then um, I did a solo show playing my father about six years ago called Secrets of a Holy Father. And that was profound to play one's father. Um, and Especially then, your father. Especially my father, who is more complicated than, I don't know, a Kennedy reunion. <laughs> Just very, very, lots of secrets, lots of lies. Um, but anyway, that, that solo show in some ways, I think, evolved organically into the book, even though I knew I was always going to write a book. Um, this book specifically highlights my father and my relationship, uh, a very unorthodox one. And um, and so that's that. And then I've just, my writing career seems to have taken off. I write screenplays for hire. Uh, I'm now pitching hiding, hiding Out for the Screen, which I'm super excited about. And um, most of all, I hope sort of finding a way to be of service um, with my very complicated childhood that now is sort of been blasted out to the world um, shamelessly, I'm proud to say. Um, but I think other people have gotten a lot of permission to be shameless about their lives or at least start to reveal some secrets after reading my book. Yeah. So the book is is all about family secrets, your secrets, your father's secrets, secrets that members of the family held for other members of the family. And yeah. um, I want to kind of fill the, the audience in because I haven't completed the book yet, so I'm incapable of spoiling it. But wow, there's a lot to unpack there. And the authenticity or the unvarnished way that you wrote it is really right up our alley. Mm -hmm. And so the more I looked into this story, the more I knew this is exactly what we're about as a company is this kind of, you know, not sugarcoating anything. And so, yeah, let's, uh, let's pitch people what the book is about. And so we can start talking about, yeah, uh, the all the isms, yeah, all the isms. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. So beginning, um, which is, I think a bit of this is on the back cover. So, um, as I mentioned, growing up the youngest of 13, very busy house, very religious house, grew up uh, devoutly Catholic. My dad actually was thinking of being a priest before he met my mother, um, took a different route. Um, he owned a Catholic travel agency, so Catholicism was just the world we were in, you know, everywhere. Um, that said, we, you know, in some ways, I, I think our family was almost, um, I like to think of sort of a microcosm of the Catholic Church. You know, the lightness and darkness that existed in my family mirrors a bit of that that I think exists in the church where they, there's this culture that is really doing good, is filled with love, and yet is acting out uh, both sexually, um, socially, uh, and keeping tons of secrets and lies to protect the image. And um, that was my family. So I was sexualized very young by two of my brothers. Um, that I was about nine. At 11, I was obviously sexualized. Um, and so my, my middle school teacher um, basically seduced me. That was a woman. And so then I was sort of in another 
quote unquote, um, um, I hate calling it a relationship, but you can't see my hands. I'm air quoting. Um, but it went on for a few years. It was a lot of sexuality for a really young age. Totally. Yeah. I mean, that that sort of is, it's it's not the book, although those issues are talked about in, in sort of flashback ways, simply to give it context. It's not the story of hiding out, but it's the context of the young woman, me, that you are going to meet from 18 to her early 20s. And that context is really important because the behavior that I had, and it's not, as you said, um, varnished in any way, mine or other people's behavior, because I very much was acting from a place of, um, you know, what I learned. So um, I was just speaking to a therapist the other day uh, for some talkbacks I'm going to do around this play, Extremities. And um, she was saying, you know, people who have been traumatized um, as children, especially sexually, typically become either a predator or um, a victim. And in my case, I think in some ways, not that I was predatory on anyone not of age. In other words, I didn't, I didn't abuse anyone, but in predatory in the sense of your behavior, in terms of your sexual behavior, like, are you going to be victimized again, or are you going to be sort of, you know, the hunter, so to speak? Uh, and that's what I learned. And so there's a lot of that in hiding out. There's a lot of um, outrageous behavior, both with men and women. Um and, uh, but the heart of the story is my father's secret lives that he shared with me and then that we carried each other's secrets. And that's really what hiding out is and then the price that families pay when they hide out. Yeah. Which is big. Yeah, there's a line that, that goes on in the recovery community that goes, you're only as sick as your secrets. Yeah. You know, and yeah. Very sick culture, you know, hence, you know, the Catholic Church and the reference to my family, both at times, you know, there's a sickness in there that if you don't put the light on, it just it just grows. And I think we've seen that, you know, certainly in the church, um, sadly, how long it's taken to address some very heinous behavior and still covering up to this day. So yeah. for me, it's about that's not the, that's not the future I wanted, you know. So who I was who I decided to be in the face of growing up in a family of secrets and lies was to tell you know unvarnished truths. And I think that is my path today. Yeah, one of the the things I found really interesting about it is somebody asked you directly, like or mentioned. I forget where I picked this up, but they said oh, isn't it cathartic that you wrote about it? And your answer was, no, I've been going to therapy. I've been processing it. <laughs> like, I, I just felt like a, a debt of honor to pass it on. Absolutely. Uh, but what that means is a lot of really complicated things. I have a friend that I can think of right now um, who has some similarities with uh, family members who were um, predators. Uh-huh. And... I know that by the time the book came out, your father had already passed. Yes, both my parents were gone. But your brothers are still alive. Yes. And how did you, how do you navigate that where you, you have a story? There are millions of people who share the same story. So I understand on, on a certain level the importance of getting it out. Yeah. But by you being one of the people to get it out, you are exposing two very alive humans in an ongoing family. Yeah. Dynamic. Talk, yeah. Talk to me. Talk me through. Yeah. You know, um, 
I had thoughts years ago um, when I was just starting to write the book. My sort of personal fantasy was that maybe when the book came out, uh, that we as a family would be able to really lean into it as opposed to uh, some people who maybe uh, haven't dealt with this these issues uh, as in-depth as some of the others in my family because many have been in therapy and processed a lot. Some haven't as much or at all. And there's a distinction between those people. There is um, a difference between the response to the book uh, from those that have actually been in therapy and in doing their own healing, because my whole family was affected in their own unique way. I'm not the only one that suffered. I'm not the only one that, um, you know, felt pain and feels pain. But um, what I know for sure is that putting the light on something and coming at it shamelessly is the way to heal and it's the way to help other people. And uh, this book, as you know, even if you're halfway through, you already know it's not a revenge memoir uh, no. in any way. It is filled with forgiveness. I've forgiven my brothers. I've forgiven the teacher. I've forgiven anyone in my life that's hurt me. Um, but that doesn't mean I'm silent. You know, forgiveness does not equal silence. I have that written down. Yeah, and it's it's really important because I think people who haven't done, as they say, the work, you know, they haven't done a, a healing that needs to happen, sometimes get confused and think that, oh, if you forgive, then you're silent. Oh, well, if you forgive and you, forgive and you don't need to talk about it. But that's where shame lives. You know, we talked about Brene Brown uh, before we got on um, this podcast and you know, she obviously she talks a lot about that, but it's true. It's like there's still shame when you're silent. You know, it doesn't mean you have to go public, but I am a public person and I'm a writer. And I did think that by writing this book, I might be able to touch other people. And as I said, um, and you've read, you know, pay it forward, pay my healing forward. So yes, there's a price to pay. Um, but I invited my brothers to come on any of the publicity I've done, including Megyn Kelly. Um, to this point, they've declined. Um, I don't think you don't name them though, right? No, I, every, every, yeah. all the names in my book are uh, obviously not my name, but my family name is different than my uh, stage name. And so the names in the book are not my family's names, not their first or last name. So in that way, I did what I could to protect the anonymity. Uh, if you know my family and you're close and you've been in the circle of the family, you could probably figure out sure. uh, or guess, but um, that wasn't my intent. It wasn't about putting puzzle pieces together. It was about um, putting light on shame, blame, alcoholism, incest, sexual abuse, all of it, um, so that the next generation doesn't have to live that way, nor does anyone else who cares to take it on. So I guess the short answer um, is that this is bigger than my family. Yeah. And that's, that, that was where I made peace with myself. This story is bigger than my family. And it, as you said, affects millions of people. Yeah, I have that line written down. Compassion is not silence. Healing is not silence. Mm. And I think a lot, I know a lot of the things I suffered with live in the dark. Mm. You know, they live in the darkness, suicidal ideation, depression, alcoholism, mm. uh, in my case, like severe drug addiction. Mm. It all lives in darkness, you know, and like yeah. me as an ex, uh, as an ex-meth head, you know, I'll be in an Uber and we'll recognize each other. 
you know, and just by talking slowly, come around to it and it goes, wow, you're one of the few that made it. Yeah. You're one of the few that made it incredible. I and mean, it's way more widespread than people realize. Absolutely. All of these things. Yes. Are way, and it's, it's only until that you're willing to talk about it that you start to realize, wow, I'm not alone. And that's been the consistent theme in these interviews and in these, uh, you know, listening to people's stories is that we're not alone. Mm-hmm. We have this weird brain that convinces us that we must be the only ones going through this. Absolutely. So that's the tip of the iceberg. I don't want to give away too much of this. <laughs> I know it's like chapter two, what it's we've like just ch- covered. And yeah. uh, it really does have so many twists and turns that you can't even you can't even believe it. I think the can't put it down was what the Washington Post said, but I think it's sort of like you just can't even believe that it's nonfiction is <laughs> yeah. what a lot of people say, but it's true. And so um, another kind of chapter earlier on is you coming out yes yeah so having been uh as i mentioned you know active sexually both with men and women at such a young age it sort of left me very fluid um at a young age and so i did experiment with men and women and boys and girls if you will and by the time i was 18 i was in another sort of repetitive relationship with an older woman much like my you know middle school a scenario was, you know, sort of repeating patterns as we all do until we don't. Um, anyway, I went out to dinner with my father. Uh, I was a freshman in college. He took us out um, to talk about a trip he was going to send me on as sort of a thank you after basketball season and, you know, earning a scholarship and this and that. And at that dinner, um, he basically outed me. He said he knew that I was with this woman. Uh, and he was about the last person I would ever tell because, you know, he was, as I saw him, devout, uh, angry, uh, intolerable uh, to many things, um, you know, a 6 a.m. mass goer every day. So the fact that he, and he seemed okay about it, which was the beginning of the shock, not just that he said it, but he wasn't, you know, suggesting I, you know, go repent or you know, become a nun, <laughs> you know? And so, but, but, but the real shocker came about five minutes later when he took our hands at this uh, fancy restaurant we were in and said that he himself had buried his lover in the war and his name was Omar. And um, that was the beginning and sort of is the beginning of this book. That's in where a way. it takes off. That's where it takes off. Like, holy shit. Uh, dad's gay. Uh, He has 13 kids. I've been in the closet for a number of years hiding so many secrets. My brothers, my teacher, my current situation at 18. And now all of a sudden we've become each other's confidants, start traveling and hitting the clubs and, you know, drugs, deception and double lives is the subtitle. And that's pretty much what, what alleyway we head down together. Yeah. So from a man I hated to my drinking buddy at the clubs, um, it does take a 360. It's one of the things I, I loved about the way you captured this experience is that no one's the bad guy and right. no one's the good guy. It yeah. feel, you know, everybody is like, it reminds me of, you know, uh, religions that have like a whole pantheon of gods. Oh, yeah. Like they're all kind of 
heroes and awful yeah. people at the same yeah, time. Yeah, Greek gods. Greek gods. Yeah. They're terrible, terrible yeah. people. Yes. But then they're also, it, it, it like, one thing I've always loved about it is that it, nobody has to be the perfect yeah. being. And, and um, it just seemed so radical to not, um, I guess it added to the, the realness of it. It didn't feel like it was so, this was someone's slanted, one-sided point yeah. of view. It felt like I'm doing my best here to capture the complexities of everyone. Yeah, I have an acting coach, um, Susan Batson, um, who's kind of coaches the stars, you know, Oprah and the like, Nicole Kidman. And um, and she read an early draft of it. In fact, she's thanked in the book. Um, and she said to me, you know, Tina, you didn't give yourself uh, one single break. Uh, she meant that as a compliment. What she meant is that, you know, I held my feet to the fire as much as I did anyone else. And, you know, I had a lot of bad behavior. And the point of writing it all is to say this is actually who people become when your start looks like that when your childhood looks a certain way and you have an experience uh, a lot of people turn out doing this kind of behavior some get it arrested with help some don't uh, some crash and burn you know some heal and hopefully help uh, in my case i really just wanted to say you decide the reader, you decide what you think. And I had this young reader who reached out to me uh, through social media and she she wrote a review and then sent it to me, I guess it was on Amazon or something. And she said, you know, there were times I, well, I loved the book, she said, because it sounded like people my age and she was like 25. And that was great because it's written in the first person and I hope to capture the authenticity of that time for me. The second thing was she said, sometimes I hated her, meaning me, uh, you know, I was rooting for her at times. Uh, I was mad at her at times. And I thought, well, that's it because people are complicated and it's not one-sided. You know, we all participate in some way and I'm not making excuses for anyone, but I am saying that even if we are participating in darkness later in life, after we've experienced it early in life, we still have darkness, you know, and I certainly did and do. So I wanted to share that. And let's let's talk about how you make this uh, a story with a with a good ending. When you how did you finally start to recover from all this? Because it wasn't like you moved out of the house at eighteen and then now you can start the healing process. That's where the book comes in. But let's yeah. let's skip ahead to yeah. when you really took a look and maybe noticed I'm in this crazy cycle where I'm repeating these patterns yeah. or like your therapist said like you either become a perpetual victim or you want to be the victor next time and i can yeah. you know in tiny tiny ways i can relate and i know a lot of people can relate i got cheated on and i became a cheater for a long time after that right because yeah. i didn't want to get you don't cheated be, on you ever don't want to be again. left you're just going to be like i'll do it before you can no i get that behavior i definitely did that a lot and i got picked on a lot and, and you know in high school I, I joined the wrestling team and I no longer wanted to be the victim yeah. you know and I definitely bullied people yep and so when you decided this shit's got to stop mm. what what's that journey look like because you're where you had to forgive from I've been in some crazy dark meth field insanity i bet and i've been uh blessed with people's forgiveness mm -hmm. and also 
forgiving people that have done me really wrong. But your story takes it even a little bit further than me, and I don't get to say that much, you know, very often. Where did you start with this surviving aspect of it? Because when you take away the the drugs and the alcohol, and you're really left with you, yeah, how on earth do you survive without coping? That's a great question. Um, I think it probably was, you know, I do I do leave home at the end of the book where it ends, um, but I then after that headed to New York. Um, and as you said, I didn't, I didn't have any tools. You, you've witnessed who I was. Uh, if you read the book, you'll see. And so heading off to New York with my history, uh, enjoying checking out on, you know, with, with booze, especially, uh, occasionally drugs, uh, that's not a good recipe for a healthy life, but I was always an achiever. So I was high functioning. Um, I think the athlete in me and that sort of inner drive is, has served me well, mostly. And going to New York, I had that drive. I wanted to be successful. So even though I was pretty crazy on the weekends, um, I was functioning for a while. But um, I referenced that story of walking away from my desk uh, earlier. And, and that, I think, was a moment where I knew that I had sort of hit a wall. It was my maybe late, uh, very late 20s, um, I started getting into therapy. I started going to 12-step meetings. And I just, you know, it's like I hit my bottom, I guess you'd say, where I just couldn't keep secrets and lies. I I started to tell about what had happened. Uh, I revealed to one of my sisters what happened to me with my brothers. And that sort of opened a can of worms. Um, I obviously went to therapy. I went to group therapy and I just, I just took myself on as a project. And I think when I left my career, uh, I mentioned earlier that I had no idea why I became an actor, but when I look at it now, I think, oh, I spent my early years maybe running away and using basketball and athletics. So I sort of was using my body and then I used my mind by getting an MBA and then becoming a business executive in fashion. But then by 30, when those things were not working anymore, and clearly the drugs, alcohol, and you know, acting out sexually was not working, um, I think I made some unconscious decision or my soul made it for me that I had to go inside now, that now was gonna be the time, the next decade, decades, maybe the rest of my life, I think, will be devoted to healing. And I do think of myself kind of as a project. I think I did think of myself like, if I just keep doing this and working on myself and working on myself the way I did say basketball or other things, like maybe one day I'll actually be happy. I don't know if I'll be successful, but I'll be happy. And I could like I think they're pretty close. Yeah, they are. Yeah, I was just (laughs) listening to uh, this brilliant man talk about success and he was saying success isn't a goal or a landmark, it's a feeling. Yeah, and I really identified with that because I, I uh, have felt successful with less money, and I felt like shit with more money, mm-hmm. and so, um, yeah, like if I was your life coach, it just makes no sense that you get the MBA, you get stable, <laughs> and then you go out to do acting, <laughs> which is such a yeah. hard road to take. Yeah, um, but kind of perfectly lining up, and and as I mentioned, uh, Susan Batson is my coach. She's a method acting teacher. She's from Strasbourg and all of that school. Um, so you work with your own 
instrument, so to speak. I mean, it's not other techniques, which sometimes are more external. It's an internal process, method acting, where you're using your life, your experiences. So for me, it was probably some sort of extension of not just healing in a you know, in a therapist's office or in a group therapy or even sharing at a meeting, now I got to actually embody and express and create with it. Uh, it was bumpy for a long time. You know, I, I think success eluded me because I, for a long time, because I had so much healing to do. I don't think I was ready for, I mean, I did a lot of my own stuff. So that felt, you know, a level of success, but I don't mean, you know, like getting TV show I was on a few years ago and now, you know, just other levels of being out there with my work. Yeah. Hmm. Are you happy these days? I'm really happy. Yeah? Yeah, I am. What do you think changed? Well, I think I owned my story. I think that's what changed. I think I owned it in every nearly every way possible. You know, so many of the projects I've worked on that are my own are different sort of pieces of my life. And I had a lot of pieces to unravel, you know, even just the relationship um, situation, really abuse that happened with that teacher, you know, that so was a really complicated slice of life that would be enough to process for one person. But there was so much more than that. So I think it's just sort of taking one slice of my life at a time and turning it upside down and talking about it and creating around it, creating something with it um, has now sort of left me with, you know, a, a wholeness that I don't think I had before. And also a permission, a freedom, I think is really the answer. It's a freedom around my life that I've never had before. Uh, and I think the word shameless is, is an important one for me today to be shameless about it, uh, really equals freedom. I'm a uh, teen dad, college dropout, ex-junkie. And so I was curious about you when, you know, sometimes when I see people who seem like they had a relatively normal upbringing and then they got into Harvard or Stanford and now they have a great life um, and I start to compare myself to them and just feel like real gutter rat compared to them. Yeah. Do you feel that way ever? Not today. Not today? Not today. Did I? Sure. Yeah. What's A the lot. reset button? A lot. <laughs> when you start comparing, because some people have a more complicated road than others. Yeah. And I had a lot of years of being unhappy. Don't get me wrong. I had a lot of years of struggle and tears and you know, years of anger. I mean, I had years of anger. I joke and say anyone who was driving in LA in the 90s knows how angry I was. You know, my road rage. I mean, you know, I could get in the car and just next thing I know I'm in it with someone, you know. It, it just, it had to come out. And so I've been through a long process. But I think, I think gratitude is a reset button. I think gratitude is the best reset button that anyone could use. Um, because when you, when you find gratitude with what you have, it's really hard to be in a place of, um, you know, beating yourself up or lack, frankly, it's the antithesis of it. So I think 
being grateful and staying in that on a daily basis is gone goes a long way um, to resetting those thoughts that you were describing. When you're talking to other people, um, other like survivors of life, let's just say, um, how do you coach them through the consequences of truth telling? Because for for instance, it's like when you're a little kid and you feel so good about, I mean, maybe not in your household because your household was batshit fucking crazy. <laughs> but when I was a little kid, I would get so excited to come clean about something and then you still get in trouble. Mm. And it's very much like that, except on steroids when it comes to people talking about um, incest or rape. Often the world does not embrace you, mm -hmm. uh, especially I told you I have a friend who's affected by a sibling, who's a victim of a sibling. I don't want to sugarcoat the language. Mm -hmm. And uh, she got honest with the family and it's been years and they still pretend it never happened. Yeah. Like the only way for them to keep going as a family was to pretend it never happened. And it doesn't matter how many times she brings it up, it can't happen. It could not have possibly happened. So that's a very disappointing reception to honesty. Yeah. I did an article uh, or an interview, excuse me, with Teen Vogue. Um, and I would love the opportunity that I could talk to talk to uh, a younger audience. And when the interviewer was asking me some questions, uh, it reminds me one of them of what you just said, which is, you know, how, do, how does a young person, for example, who might be coming out, uh, which is another challenging um, thing, um, you know, at this age in a family that doesn't feel safe, which is very much the story of your friend that you just shared, an unsafe place. And I said, you know, I think the first step when you have trauma of any kind or feel that who you are is not going to be accepted or what happened to you is not going to be accepted, I think you first go find a tribe. I think you first go yeah. to to a support system, people who have been there, people who are open, whether it's 12 steps or therapy or whatever kind of support group you can find. They're um, out there. They're out there. Yeah. There's 800 numbers to all kinds of places where volunteers and people with experience will be there to listen. And I think getting your strength first before taking it to the family. You know, today, I, it's probably no coincidence that I wrote the most public thing uh, meaning my book, at a time when I'm the strongest. So if I had written it 10 years ago, I might have gotten, you know, bowled over by the response from some of my siblings, for example. Uh, six, seven years ago, I talk about in my prologue that I had written uh, this solo show and decided to take my dad on as a character um, in this solo piece and just play him and tell an unvarnished truth of all that I knew of him, including his, his uh, bisexuality, homosexuality. Um, um, and that was not w well received by some in my family. And he was already gone. But the reason was that, like your friend, the truth and the light was too hard to turn on because they themselves were not ready for that and may never be. Um, and I think that's what it sounds like with your friend's family. And I think you have to find your people first and have your strength because there's a lot of families that do not want to hear the truth. They don't want the neighbors gossiping. They're more concerned about being talked about than healing. That's safer because that's the way it's always been.
you know, change is not for the faint of heart. Yeah. Well, it's just like, you know, we need people to either be good or evil. It's true. You know, for yeah. whatever reason, we like to put things into boxes, right? So yeah, us, good, them, bad, right? Like you'll see it in politics. You'll see it all over the place. Like it can't be complicated. It has to be very simple. Yeah. We're good, they're bad. Yeah. And you, you know, you can't hang on to the image of that person that yeah. you've built up and also accept this new ugly truth. Yeah. They don't, they're not very compatible. And the truth is, is that they are compatible that somewhere in the middle, you know, where they are a total predator yeah. and total have a real sickness. Yeah. Um, and they also are the, the person that did whatever, hopefully good and redeeming things that they did in their life that cause you to have a good image of them. You know, they're both. Absolutely. Everyone is both. Even um, this play I'm directing extremities is about uh, a woman who's sexually assaulted or an attempted sexual assault, nearly raped. Uh, then she turns the tables on him. You know, I'm, I'm directing that perpetrator and looking, um, and the writer's done a good job. It's an old play from 78, actually. But, the, but you know, this guy's a human being, even though, yes, he's a monster. Nobody wants to come to the theater to just see a monster because it's not real. It's not to say that a serial rapist isn't behaving like a monster, but they weren't necessarily born a monster. Uh, and even this writer of this play has written many implications that this rapist was abused when he was younger. And um, in my family too, uh, the abuse did not start with me. So it's not my job or, or my place to share my sibling's story, but I will leave it at that, that it does not happen in a vacuum. And so for me, it's like, you have to, if you want to be free, you have to come clean. And the saddest part about some people uh, in my family still uh, wanting to make it a black and white issue, like I'm wrong, I'm bad for telling the truth or for exposing uh, these big ticket items, um, they're, they're missing out. It's just a reflection of their own lack of freedom. And that makes me sad, not for me. I'm fine. You know, I don't, you know, maybe won't ever get invited to certain family functions on, <laughs> from certain people. However, I'm going to live out loud. If it means not being invited, I'm going to live out loud. That will never change. I will never sacrifice, you know, being complicit in what we were taught to do as a family, which is to keep it, keep it quiet, keep it secret. That's I'm not, that's not my game anymore, but I love them. What's next? What do you want out of the next chapter of, of life now? Mm. Cause you, you're like at that point to where, you know, you could easily say, okay, yeah, I did it. I was in a TV show where I got really recognized outsiders. Yes, outsiders. You got real recognition as like one of the people that stole the show. Oh, thank you. Um, you're now directing a play. Like you have all this stuff. Yeah. What's next? Well, I mentioned earlier to you privately that I want to turn um, Hiding Out into a television series. That's really been a dream of mine. Again, because I think these issues, even though so much is now dealt with on television, um, there's still stuff that can be dealt with, like what we're talking about today, these kind of relationships that are really complicated. Like, how do you engage with family 
members that have traumatized you or taken your innocence or how does that work? How do we live under a roof together? Um, there's a lot to learn from ex examining lightness and darkness. So for me, that's uh, definitely what I see ahead. But I think in a more, I guess, emotional, psychological uh, place, my hope is to just keep finding ways to serve and give back. And I don't know what that's going to look like. I mean, I have a lot of faith and I pray and I ask to be shown because I, I do feel capable of sort of going right, left, backwards, forwards, up, down. I feel capable today of actually doing just about anything. But I but I want to follow the path uh, that that's where I can be of most the most service. And I think a show like Hiding Out would be of service. So that excites me. And the play I'm directing is definitely being of service. Um, so those are the kinds of projects I'm looking for and staying open to something maybe I don't know. Maybe I'll have a podcast. <laughs> it's a lot of work, but it's fun. I know. It's really I'm rewarding in thrilled, its own way. Not thrilled. financially, but yeah. in, in other ways. Of course. No, I can feel it. I mean, just sitting, having the conversation with mm -hmm. you, I learned so much, you know, just getting, you know, being interviewed and listening to other people's stories and people who share and, um, it's, it's amazing to write a book so, um, I'll say brazenly, because I think it is pretty brazen to be that specific. And um, that even in meetings that I take that are business meetings, if they're about the book and they've read the book, it's remarkable how the business people open up to me, how much information somebody might share about I, their own life. I lead with it in my own life. Well, yeah. I have to because some of it's online, you know. Yes, of course. If I'm in a job interview, they're going to see my piece on suicide. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the last company I worked for, I interviewed and I said, I'm an ex-meth head. I've been, you know, I've been clean and sober for like six and a half years. Point out one of these people that has that kind of determination. Exactly. You know, and I got the job. And it turned out that the boss had been to some serious darkness. And he said, you're the only person I can talk to about this, you know. Because everybody thought he was just yeah had lived this great life. Maybe that's the lesson of the story: is all the people I think are just living that great life probably aren't. Aren't? No, they have their own demons and darkness. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Life, I think, is just hard a lot of the time. Yeah. How and beautiful. I have a, a question. I would love an answer to. Yes, I hope um, I can give it to you. Your answer to. Mm -hmm. How do you make sense of the bad stuff? My cat that I've had forever just went missing. Oh. And like, I felt like uh, I was on such a roll, like little, I was just getting these little breaks and, you know, these funny coincidences. Life was just, it I literally felt like I'm just in the flow. And then my cat goes missing and I, I'm still in the flow. There's still amazing things happening all around me. Magic is happening um, right now, but you know, I've always kind of believed like there's something working for good out there. There's some kind of higher power. And like it's a, yeah, as um, Byron Katie said, which I really liked, it's a friendly universe. Yes, I agree. But it's so hard to make sense of the bad stuff hmm. when it's in your backyard, when my cat's not showing up and possibly got eaten by coyotes. Yeah. How do you make sense of it? I think it's sort of, for me, again, comes back to this idea of gratitude because, you know, if I go down that path of 
sort of why me? So everything's going great, but you know, here I auditioned for something and got four callbacks and couldn't have done any better. I think of you know laid it on the on the floor and you know showed up and did everything I could and don't get it. Let's just say, I mean, it's not losing a cat, but as an example, um, you know, I don't get something I want or something bad happens. I could just as easily sit down and write down, why do I have two hands? You know, why do I have two feet? Why, why am I not in a wheelchair? Why was I born healthy? You know, why can I run and somebody else can't? Why have I not, you know, been in, art, in, a, in a car accident and had my spinal cord, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like there's always so much to be grateful for. And so... I also, in addition to that, try to look today, I didn't used to, but I try to look today at the lesson inside of it. You know, is it, is it an attachment? Is it that I think that's the only thing I'm worthy of? Am I in a place of lack where I think, oh, that was taken away from me? That's it. Well, what's the lesson? Well, it's an abundant, friendly, generous universe. So there's plenty more. And that goes for relationships, jobs, cats. Yeah. And I don't mean to, you know, you know, toss that away like it's not important because there's nothing more than I've ever loved than my dog. <laughs> so I get it. Uh, and I would be heartbroken. Animals so are the worst. They things. are. I mean, just the level of unconditional love. And yet, then there's that. Wow, that cat teaches me to love unconditionally. I can't do such a good job with people, but I sure can with that cat. You know, I think it's always silver lining. Um, and I think my mother had a great ability for that. Not so much my dad. <laughs> he was, you know, he had other gifts. That wasn't one of them. But my mother was definitely, you know, felt she was blessed and remembered her blessings. And uh, and she, that, that, has, that serves me well when things don't go quite the way I want. Yeah. God, you mentioned your mother. I can't get the image of her cutting the thing off her toe with a straight razor. Right. Oh, my God. Right. Such yeah. a sidebar. I'm sorry. No, it's... What um, was it? A yeah, it was uh, a corn, was and a she God. was using a straight razor, um, too, and, and then putting those Dr. Scholl's pads, um, you know, to... Yeah, I mean, 13 kids, and um, clearly she had some varicose veins and some calloused feet and all the rest um but she was she was pretty amazing you know um, what she was able to you know do endure with my dad and still love us the way she did and show up on a daily basis with an open heart is i used to think she was weak you know i used to think that's weakness so you're with someone who treats you poorly you must be weak and i thought i'm never going to be like that never going to be. But actually, as I've gotten older, I thought, wow, it sure takes a compassionate person to see the beauty in someone that's acting like an idiot most of the time, at least towards her. So how, how do you start your dream um, or keep the dream going when you start later in life? Because I look at the young artists coming out now and just go, fuck, man, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I, uh, I'm about to turn 29 and my brain will still convince me it's my, too my, late. It's too late for yeah, me. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I, um, I don't know if it was my own personal brainwashing of myself <laughs> that just kept saying, just keep doing the work. Like 
even even my acting coach, you know, she'd say, Tina, just keep working. They'll find you. They'll find you. Uh, and in a way, sometimes I still don't feel found yet. You know, that's the truth. Yes, of course, I feel very grateful. And uh, Outsiders was definitely a breakthrough for me. And and I just, you get a taste and then that's an example of something going away. You know, we thought we were going back for season three. We, we, we just loved what we were doing, all of us. It was a great close-knit ensemble, very pleasant, great cast crew. Uh, thought we were going back and literally like a week before we thought we were going back, like read it in deadline, read it on my iPhone as it came across, Outsiders canceled because wow. they sold the network had nothing to do with us or our ratings or anything. It's like, who could have predicted that? You know, there were cast members on television like two days before going, yeah, I'm going back to work next week. And so it's like, you never know, but you never know anyway. Even when you think, you know, you don't know. Yeah. You know, it's, um, yeah. It's easy to work. Uh, it's easy to like keep working when you have those highs, those hits. Yeah. But if you just rely on the hits, you're going to quit. I know I know this because I've quit a lot of cool creative things I've started because I stopped getting yeah. that high. What, do you have any secrets as an artist to just kind of keep the marathon going, keep pace, even though you're not getting those? You know, one of the things that served me is I think I made a, a really conscious decision that I wanted to really be good at what I did. Like I didn't, I didn't just want fame and fortune, although what? that's nice, <laughs> but I actually wanted to be good at what I did. So I think I put a lot of emphasis on the craft. So I was always in class. So if I wasn't working, I didn't just, you know, kick back and not work on my craft. So it's like a guitarist or a painter or anyone else. It's like, just because you don't have a show coming up or you're not in a band, if you're practicing every day, they will find you and you'll find your way. But if you're waiting to get something, to practice, to work on yourself, to get better, um, it probably isn't gonna happen. So I think I think there's a consistency um, that has to happen. And it's different, because you don't have a nine to five job, right, in the arts, you know? I mean, you may have a separate job, but generally artists, if they're not employed, are not employed, you know? It, it's like, you, but if they're not doing what they love, <clears throat> because they're not employed, then what? Yeah. Well, I'm on a, I'm in a weird place right now with work because somewhere along the podcast, something sunk into me where I can no longer abuse myself to get me to work. And I didn't realize that was the case. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize <laughs> that I would wake up and go, there's someone out there that's going to take your shit and get your spot if you don't work that you know if you don't do this now you're gonna fail it was all very abusive i just didn't hear it in the background it was mm -hmm. like some record playing in the other room and that's what got me into the, and at some point i couldn't do it anymore because mm -hmm. something about these conversations brought it to light and so i'm relearning how to work right now and it's very slow and it's frustrating I yeah. feel like I'm relearning. I, I'm I'm actually in a funny place myself. I've known what I was going to do as as far as a job um, between the book and the TV series and other writing jobs. I've I've kind of been on a roll for probably four years, maybe five, where I've actually known. Oh well, at least when I'm done this, and then I'll have, and I'm sure then the book will be ready to edit, and then you know the next advance or the final event, you know, and then the next writing job, and then yeah, blah blah. I don't have that today. I mean, when this directing job ends, 
um, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm definitely going to write another book, but I still have to map that out. I'm still outlining. The point is that there's no certainty, but I know about beating myself up because I can't see it. Like I did a lot of that, what you're describing. So it's like I'm beating myself up in order to, to get it, but I'm also beating myself up when I don't have it. So the thing is, you just have to stop beating yourself up. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, see, I've you, done that part. Yeah. I almost like it wasn't like a conscious effort. It was just uh, all of a sudden it couldn't hide anymore. Mm-hmm. And so I heard it for what it was. Every time I'd go, get up, you lazy bum. You have to get this done. Oh, I got it. I, I would just go, whoa, what is that voice? That's crazy. And so I'm like figuring out how do I work hard and be kind to myself? It's I, I, that probably sounds like really obvious to some people, <laughs> but to me, it's like we're in a whole new league right now. Yeah. Cause I'm living the best I've ever lived. That's the secret. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, uh, I think it started with, uh, Mandy who, who just in passing was like, man, your plans for yourself sound cool, but like, have you ever thought about just also being nice to yourself? Yes. Well, I think for me, there was a fear um, when I was doing a lot of that, what you're describing, that if I wasn't hard on myself, I would not accomplish anything. Yes. And that's that's what I learned. I mean, my father was a workaholic. Um, I mean, he he just he just was a workaholic, like constant, constant, and very much a taskmaster and basketball is a very physical demanding sport that requires training and so that's my mindset so being nice didn't quite equate and if even taking a day off didn't equate like if i take the weekend off if i take a vacation you know my dad always bragged i haven't had a vacation in years you know and uh, i've never taken a bloody vacation um and and so i inherited that so i totally understand what you're saying um, and that is what I was actually going to say a moment ago is that I feel in a bit of a transition myself that I've sort of, as I'm coming to this sort of closure on, you know, two writing projects that have been going on for a few years, my book, the series ended, I'm praying to go to another place in my work. I'm, I'm praying to go to a deeper level, even of the creativity that I've been doing. I'm praying for like a new place a new discovery, uh, coming from every bit of, um, work that I do from the soul and not to say I haven't, but I'm just looking, I know it can go deeper. I know it can be even more effortless and more directed by something bigger than myself. So I'm not hammering away because I can hammer. (laughs) I know how to hammer. I've been hammering a lot. And then, and it's part of why I do a lot of stuff because I, I know how to hammer. But I'm kind of curious to see, maybe it actually might be more than I could ever imagine if I don't hammer. I have a feeling. I'm excited about this chapter. I mean, my output is a little bit low. And so like, let's, well, I'm just going to be realistic. That has to go up. I have to figure out how to, yeah. you know, sit down for yeah, four hours at a time, maybe yeah. twice a day. Yeah. Well, a good friend of mine who yeah. knows a lot about astrology just for astrology's sake, I'll say that uh, has told me that this Mars has been in retrograde, which is sort of all of the male action 
represents all the male action moving forward, and it's been retrograde, meaning it's going backwards. So everything's been a little quiet since the end of June, a little slower. It all makes sense. So now, now you can oh, now you see great. there's a, there's I just an have answer. To wait it out. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Wait till I think it's August. 18th or something oh, perfect yeah you'll be fine or the 12th my uh, my golden year starts on the 29th so oh. i really just have to what's get your it. sign uh virgo oh okay yeah. i have a virgo moon so that, that oh, nice. all that organization and yeah I yeah i think that's lives in that virgo right uh one thing i really admire about you is that um you put yourself out there and you hustle and you get it done i think you found us didn't you i did see so i did uh, we got an email from you that yes. just said, hey, I like your program. This is my story. You know, wh- yeah. what do you think? And then obviously we saw your story and said, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, definitely. They haven't ever heard a story like this story. <laughs> and uh, it was it was pivotal for me. I've always had this idea that I'm going to build this platform that can help other artists and writers and help elevate them. We're not there yet. You know, we have a lot of listeners, but for every... 10,000 listeners, you probably have like 10 people that are willing to act. Yeah. You know, 10 people that will comment or like. Yes. And it's, you're just like blown away at how, you know, yeah. It's really one sided in terms of consume, consume. It's true. So I haven't felt useful enough to like start just finding great stories, great people. And so I've been obsessed with, I just have to build the following. I just have to build the following so I can be useful one day. And, uh, your story snapped me out of it. I said, I want to talk about this story. You know, I want people to read this. Yeah. Or I want, especially anyone who feels like they're the only one going through it, to find this story. Yeah. And so how do you sit at the computer, write something to try and get your your work noticed and present? Because I have written the letter mm-hmm. lots of times and mm. I've never pressed sent when it comes to sending my work to a gallery to a publisher. Wow. I've never pressed send. And wow. so that was the first thing I really admired about you is that you did it. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I mean, HarperCollins did an amazing job with my publicity for my book, but as you know, that does come to an end. They don't do it, you know, a year. So after a few months, you know, they move on to the next 10 books they've got coming up and all that is just the way it goes. But then you say what I barely scratched the surface. Like so many people that I want to reach that I I think I can help with this book. Um, In terms of your question, I think when you know in your heart that you have something that can make a difference, and everyone has something that can make a difference, you just have to find out what that thing is that's special for you. But every single human being can make a difference um, and and know that it's not about you. Like in a way... um, I think I've known for a long time that this book, even though, yes, it has my name on it, and yes, obviously, it's a memoir, so it is about me, is not about me. And all the effort to, say, hit send is, like I tell my actors on stage, this is not about you, you and your nerves. You know, when I go to set and I'm nervous, uh, when, you know, that 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 I'm going to not be good enough or any. it's like, wait a second, I'm here to serve. I'm on this set as one of many, as a collaboration. And I have something to give, and that's my job. It's not about me and how good I do or how bad I do. But mostly it's not about the yes or no. Yeah. And I have a great transformational coach. Um, Tracy Goss is her name. And I call her transformational coach because she really is about taking what you just said and changing that, 
turning it upside down. To, and so now I can always hit send. But there was a time I couldn't because the rejection of it meant something. Yeah, it's, it's terrifying. Yeah, I think even when I first heard back from you, I think it was sort of not now. Uh, the the very very first response. I yeah. don't know if it was you personally, but it was just sort of like we'll keep you keep you on file. You know, don't call us. We'll call you. No, I'm kidding. He he did not say that. Well, I didn't say it like that. <laughs> I'm teasing. But, but yes, it was a it was a sort of not now. But then I I reached out again, and I had seen I think I had seen the uh, Brene Brown, and I had seen somebody else, and I thought they're really good. Like those are very inspiring uh, podcasts that I was hearing, and I said I want to be on. I want to be part of that. Yeah. So if it was next year you called me or 10 years from now or whatever, like I didn't take it personally. It was just not now. Um, I just move on. But also I don't forget you. I don't give up on it because you never know. But I think as an actor or any creative, and you know this, you got to be willing to hit send and not take it personal. Yeah, You can't interpret. That's what Tracy Goss taught me more than anything else is your interpretation is what's getting you in trouble interpretation in everything interpretation about my book interpretation of what you think of me interpretation of you know how i did today doing this podcast or how you did or who's gonna give me a call back or a job or you know any of it it's like i have no idea what's in your head i have no idea what's in anyone's head why am i going to create a story about why you said not now why am i going to take a day or an hour and say Oh, I feel rejected. Like that was such a cool podcast. And they just, they weren't, they weren't impressed with me or I'm not famous enough or I'm not this enough. It's not that it didn't cross my mind. The story is so lame too. <laughs> the story is that I was scared uh, that we didn't have a big enough following. Oh, that's so funny. That's And, and I mean, it's so funny in the yeah. mirroring that can happen. And then it's like, I didn't, that's not where I went. You know, it's like, for a moment, it, those thoughts, because we're human, they cross your mind. Of course, we wouldn't be human if we didn't have a feeling. But how long are you going to give it? Which is another thing that, uh, not to pound on Tracy, but she's so great. It's like, she's like, okay, fine. You know, like, have a tantrum about something that happens. Uh, but how long are you going to give it? You know, five minutes is fine. Two minutes is better. Uh, not a day. Not an hour. We were talking about this yesterday. Get on with it. You know, and I think we have to have that kind of discipline with ourselves as artists because nobody else is going to do it. No. I mean, that day passes really quick. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so hit send. <laughs> yeah. My soul was nodding. So it was just, I could feel my soul just kind of like, yeah, dude. Yeah. It has so little to do with you. Why, yeah. why are you pretending? Ego gets in my yeah. way so much. Yeah. How, do, how will people think of me if I do this? Yes. You won't see a lot of videos of me for that reason. Wow. You know, yeah. And you're so handsome. People, <sighs> you should see this guy. <laughs> Tell him to make videos. I, I always like to end the program uh, with, oh, God, there's construction starting now. Okay. It's okay. We'll get this last question out. Okay. I always like to end the program in a similar way, but I like to change the circumstances a bit. So if there was a child who's kind of stuck in a really lame situation um, with the things that are just out of a child's control, mm. parents and uh, life situation, financial situation. Um, and they could just come across a recorded message from you. Mm -hmm. What would you want to tell them about what's, what's important and 
what, what they should know going forward in life to, to try and guide them through the next little chapter of their life? I guess I would say that something my dad used to say, actually, which is there's nothing you cannot do if you put your mind to it. And this is going to pass. You're going to eventually not be in this situation. Um, and also remembering that grown-ups are just big children. They look bigger and they look more powerful, but most of them are just big children. And they're scared too. And that's why they're doing probably what they're doing, because they're scared. And, you know, just staying on a path, even though it's a child, but staying and trusting that there's a day that's going to come where you're really going to understand that there's nothing that can stop you. It's like even the, even people treating you badly can't stop you, you know? Thank you so much for your time. Yes, thank you. What a human being. Tina Alexis Allen. This is the How to Human podcast, a production of Hello Humans, produced by myself, Sam Lamott, and our producer, Meg Schmidt. And here to take us home is the single called Home by Mercy Bell. Just trying to get it together, it seems. Takes all of the energy I need to succeed. Spent six whole months waking up in strange beds. Trying to outrun the call, finding out that she's dead. Won't you come pick me up? Forget the years that I spent drunk. Take me home. I'll be better in the morning. Take me
Take me home.